I would invite the children to come forward. However, and I, <laughs> I don't mean to assume based on what I see, but it doesn't look like there are any kids here to come forward this morning. And so I'll talk to you all. And uh, if there are any kids at home watching on live stream and joining as well this way. Um, here, we'll just come down here. Can you see me all right on there? Does that work? This is just really big. Okay. <laughs> well, I want you to be able to see this. Can you see this? Is that out of focus? This way. All right. And maybe you guys can see a little better from here too. You see the maze on here? Come closer. Okay, sorry. <laughs> there we go. It's a good thing I have some direction here. All right, you've done mazes before. You know how mazes work, right? And um, how, how easy is it to do a complicated maze? <laughs> if it's complicated, it's not very easy, right? And yet, uh, you know how it typically goes. Uh, you start at the beginning, and then you try to work it that way, and you're like, ah, I'm getting stuck. And so then you go, oh, I know what I'll do. I'll start at the end. And so you start at the You tried this before? You start at the end, and you go that way? It works a little better, maybe. Okay. Um, but whichever way you go, it, it, you can end up in some dead ends, and you got to do some backtracking, that sort of thing. Um, do you think it would be easier to do a maze if part of it were highlighted already, like this? It be a little easier? I don't know if you can see that from where you're sitting. Yeah, so it's got the whole... Can you see it all right? Okay. <laughs> So it's got the whole path highlighted so you can see every twist and turn. And what's interesting about this maze, as with most mazes, is it doesn't go straight from the start to the finish, but it takes lots of other routes. And we're going to talk about that in a little bit. Uh, But for right now, I just want us to think about how much easier it would be if instead of having to discover all the dead ends on our own, Uh, we were shown in advance which way is the way that leads uh, to the solution and the the exit here. All right, so let's think about that, and uh, yeah, we'll pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this day that you have made. Yeah, we do thank you for your word that you have given to us, revealing uh, who you are, revealing your way to us. Now we pray that you would give us ears to hear your word, minds to understand your word, and hearts that are ready to trust and obey and to follow the way that you have revealed to us. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, our gospel reading this morning is Mark chapter 4 verses 30 to 34, another short one. But When Jesus is telling parables, it is not the length of the parable that gives it the significance. And in fact, this, this parable uh, is one that specifically lets us know that it is not the size that is the most important thing. As again, he said, what shall we say the kingdom of God is like? Or what parable shall we use to describe it? It is like a mustard seed, which is the smallest of all seeds on earth. 
Yet when planted, it grows and becomes the largest of all garden plants, with such big branches that the birds can perch in its shade. With many similar parables, Jesus spoke the word to them as much as they could understand. He did not say anything to them without using a parable, but when he was alone with his own disciples, he explained everything. Turning then to our New Testament reading, 2 Corinthians 8, starting in verse 16 and going on through 9-5. Paul, writing in the church in Corinth, says, Thanks be to God, who put it into the heart of Titus, who put into the heart of Titus the same concern I have for you. For Titus not only welcomed our appeal, but he is coming to you with much enthusiasm and on his own initiative. And we are sending along with him the brother who is praised by all the churches for his service to the gospel. What is more, he was chosen by the churches to accompany us as we carry the offering which we administer in order to honor the Lord himself and to show our eagerness to help. We want to avoid any criticism of the way we administer this liberal gift. For we are taking pains to do what is right, not only in the eyes of the Lord, but also in the eyes of man. In addition, we are sending with them our brother who has often proved to us in many ways that he is zealous and now even more so because of his great confidence in you. As for Titus, he is my partner and co-worker among you. As for our brothers, they are representatives of the church and an honor to Christ. Therefore, show these men the proof of your love and the reason for our pride in you so that the churches can see it. There is no need for me to write to you about this service to the Lord's people, for I know your eagerness to help And I have been boasting about it to the Macedonians, telling them that since last year, you and Achaia were ready to give, and your enthusiasm has stirred most of them to action. But I am sending the brothers in order that our boasting about you in this manner should not prove hollow, but that you may be ready, as I said you would be. For if any Macedonians come to me and find you unprepared, we, not to say anything about you, would be ashamed of having been so confident." So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to visit you in advance and finish the arrangements for the generous gift you had promised. Then it will be ready as a generous gift, not as one grudgingly given. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, we are looking at uh, Genesis chapter 40 this morning. And to remind you of where we are in the story to this point, we've been looking at the book of Genesis and uh, we had seen the way that God had created the whole world, the way that everything had spiraled downhill, the way that people had tried to make their way back on their own, and this was not the way it was going to be. We've seen the way that uh, God then chooses a man named Abram and says, it's through you and through your family that all the nations on the earth are going to be blessed. And we have watched then as generation after generation, they don't do that. It's not, they're not blessing the peoples around them. And we see them continually, you know, sometimes get it right, but often get it wrong as uh, they follow more the ways of the world than they do the ways of God. Then we get to Jacob, gets his name changed to Israel, and he has these 12 sons. And we saw that the, that the way that the sons interacted with each other was not good, not right, not healthy relationships between them, but actually we see several of them, like most of them, band together to sell one of them off as a slave. And uh, we've been following then the story of Joseph, who's the one that gets sold into slavery. 
And we've been following the story of Joseph and also the story of Judah. Judah, I mention, we're following his story too, just to keep that in the back of your mind. He doesn't come up today, but we're still telling his story. So keep that in mind. That will come later. Um, But as we're following Joseph's story, we see that not only does he get sold into slavery, but then while he's in slavery and in service to Potiphar in Egypt, far from home, far from everyone and everything he's ever known, he serves Pharaoh and he brings blessing, or not Pharaoh, Potiphar, and brings blessing to his household in the way that he serves him faithfully. And it is though uh, he is serving God and not just serving people. And does that go well for him? No. <laughs> in fact, as he is serving faithfully, it's even a part of his faithful service that gets him into trouble. When, as we saw last week, Potiphar's wife says, hey, I want to sleep with you. And he says, no, that would not be the right thing to do. I'm not going to do that. And because of this, uh, she ends up lying about him and getting him thrown into prison, which is where we left off last week. And so we pick up the story there. With Joseph in prison, he has been uh, in prison, serving faithfully, even in prison, but very, very far from where it seemed like this story was going to go. Ooh, I left out one part. This is important. (laughs) This is early in Joseph's life. This is one of the reasons, one of the reasons why his brothers wanted to get rid of him is because Joseph had some dreams. You remember this? Dreams are quite significant in Joseph's story, and this week we get some more of that. But he had some dreams that basically uh, were pretty obvious in what they meant. It was uh, dreams of, you know, he and his brothers, they're out harvesting, and they have the, um, the sheaves all bound up, and everybody else's comes around his and bows down to his, and it's like, oh, okay, that's pretty clear. <laughs> as to what this means. And so they get mad about it because they already know that this means you think that you're going to be over us someday, that we're going to bow down to you. Who do you think you are? And he has another dream where it's the sun, moon, and stars are all bowing down to him kind of thing. And it's, again, it's the whole family bowing down to Joseph. So they don't like that. And then we see him, you know, ever since then, things have just gone from bad to worse. And so ever since then, it seems like, you know, maybe that's not what those dreams meant. Or maybe that is what they meant, and it's just never going to happen. Maybe it wasn't actually what was going to happen. Maybe it was just one possibility of things, but it's not actually going to come to pass. Because since then, he's been sold into slavery. He's now been wrongly imprisoned. Um... However, today we get some more dreams, and we see actually what turns out to be a turning point in his story. This is Genesis chapter 40. Here we go. So sometime later, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt offended their master, the king of Egypt. Pharaoh was angry with his two officials, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker, and put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard in the same prison where Joseph was confined. The captain of the guard assigned them to Joseph, and he attended them. After they had been in custody for some time, each of the two men, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt, who were being held in prison, had a dream the same night, and each dream had a meaning of its own. 
When Joseph came to them the next morning, he saw that they were dejected. So he asked Pharaoh's officials who were in custody with him in his master's house, Why do you look so sad today? We both had dreams, they answered, but there is no one to interpret them. Then Joseph said to them, Do not interpretations belong to God? Tell me your dreams. So the chief cupbearer told Joseph his dream. He said to him, In my dream, I saw a vine in front of me, and on the vine were three branches. As soon as it budded, it blossomed, and its clusters ripened into grapes. Pharaoh's cup was in my hand, and I took the grapes, squeezed them into Pharaoh's cup, and put the cup in his hand. Okay, stop. I know that some of you have read the rest of this. You know what the dream means, but imagine you didn't. If you had just heard that dream and that's all, would you have any idea what this means? I had a dream. There was a vine. I had three branches, and then I had Pharaoh's cup, and I don't know. What do you make of that? Verse 12, this is what it means, Joseph said to him. The three branches are three days. How do you know that? Okay. (laughs) The three branches are three days. Within three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your position. And you will put Pharaoh's cup in his hand, just as you used to do when you were his cupbearer. But when all goes well with you, remember me and show me kindness. Mention me to Pharaoh and get me out of this prison. I was forcibly carried off from the land of the Hebrews, and even here I have done nothing to deserve being put in a dungeon. Huh. All right. Verse 16, when the chief baker saw that Joseph had given a favorable interpretation, he said to Joseph, I too had a dream. On my head were three baskets of bread, and the top basket were all kinds of baked goods for Pharaoh, but the birds were eating them out of the basket on my head. Again, You probably know where this is going if you've read the story. But if not, imagine you've never heard this before. Any clue what to make of this? Verse 18. This is what it means, Joseph said. The three baskets are three days. Within three days, Pharaoh will lift off your head and impale your body on a pole. And the birds will eat away your flesh. Now the third day was Pharaoh's birthday, and he gave a feast for all his officials. He lifted up the heads of the chief uh, cupbearer and the chief baker in the presence of his officials. He restored the chief cupbearer to his position so that he once again put the cup into Pharaoh's hand. But he impaled the chief baker, just as Joseph had said to them in his interpretation. The chief cupbearer, however, did not remember Joseph. He forgot him. And that's where we going to stop the reading for today, and we'll pick that up next week. Here's the crazy part. I told you this is a turning point in the story, right? This is a turning point in the story of Joseph, because what we just read, what happens here, actually does turn out to mean very good things for Joseph and for a whole lot of other people. Did you catch it, though? Probably not, especially if this is your first time through, because... At the end of the story, where is Joseph? Same place he started. And even though he had said to the guy who actually gets out of prison, hey, when you get out, (laughs) remember me, show me kindness, tell Pharaoh about me, I'm here wrongly. I mean, I shouldn't even be in Egypt, much much less in prison. And then we get to the very end of the story, and it says that guy did get out. And he forgot about Joseph. 
And so Joseph is still just left there, forgotten. We go, that's not much of a turning point. That seems like we ended exactly where we started. And it does seem that way, unless you know the rest of the story, which I do. But we'll get there. (laughs) But at this point, Joseph doesn't know the rest of the story. He knows he had those dreams long ago that say that one day his family is going to bow down to him. But so far, it doesn't look like that's the path he's on. So is that really going to happen or not? He was able to interpret these dreams. And exactly the way he interpreted it is what happened. I mean, this it's one of those things. You see the interpretation of the dream. And you hear how he says, oh, it's going to be in three days. The three branches are three days. And in three days, you're going to serve Pharaoh again. And you're like, oh, okay, yeah, I can see that now. Hindsight's twenty twenty, right? But going forward, if you just have the dream, you don't have the interpretation, even if you were to guess that this is what it would be, would you be able to say that with any kind of confidence? No. You're like, I don't know. Maybe that's the branches or days or something. That's is that a thing. I don't know. Anyway. The point here is not to figure out how to interpret dreams. That is not the point of Joseph's story. <laughs> so if you're looking at this and going, okay, I got to figure out, okay, branches are days or maybe baskets are days or something. I don't know. Different things are days. And, <laughs> and so then you have your next dream and you're like, all right, now I'm going to apply the Joseph code and we'll figure out how to interpret. No, that is not what this is about. In fact, Joseph actually tells us that interpretations come from God, Right? But he's the only one who can actually give the interpretation that basically when we're trying to do it, all we're doing is guessing. But that God actually gives interpretations. That he gets to not only give symbols, but also interpret those symbols for us. Which is really cool. Um, And we're going to get into that in uh, just a little bit. Before we do, I want to show you something. Andrew, if you can go on to the next slide. This is my summer vacation last year. Doesn't that look fun? Isn't that where you want to go for summer vacation? This is the maze at Hochitown, Oklahoma, <laughs> which was really cool. Um, I don't know how well you can see that, but uh, it is like six-foot wooden fence all arranged as a maze. Has anybody ever been in a maze that you walked through before? Yeah, quite a few. Okay, that's pretty good. And it's weird and disorienting, isn't it? One of the cool things about this particular maze is you see the stairs there? And then there's a, that's me standing up there looking over the whole thing, trying to assess the situation and figure out, okay, where you go. It's kind of nice because the whole time you're in the maze, you just keep thinking, if I could just get an overhead view, if I could just see the whole thing, I'd be able to figure this out. Not a problem. But the problem is you can't. You're just in the maze and all you can see is the next little way in front of you. And then you see, okay, do I go left? Do I go right? Do I go straight? I don't know. And so you make a guess. And what's that guess based on? It depends on how you're doing the maze. But I would like to, you know, get up there and get the overview. And they very cleverly designed this maze so that while you're up there, you can't actually see all the things you need to see. <laughs> and so what I would do, yeah, pretty clever, right? So what I would do is I would get up there and I would say, okay, I want to get to that other tower over there. And so I'd go, all right, it's, it's that way. And I think... Okay, if I could just get to there, so I need to get to there. And so I go back down the stairs, and then what am I trying to do? Take as direct a path as I can to get to there. And it was always wrong. I was terrible at this maze. (laughs) Because if you've ever done mazes, you know the direct path is never the right one. (laughs) 
And so if you're going to get from here to there, you're, you ought to expect to do some significant backtracking. Back to Joseph's story. We look at Joseph's story and the dreams that he had initially, and we think, okay, he's going to go from here to here, and it's just going to be a straight line. The shortest route is always the way that it's going to go, and it never is, because life is a lot more like a maze than it is like a straight line. And so we should expect there to be some dead ends and some backtracking, but that doesn't mean that we're on the wrong path. In fact, some of those dead ends and backtracking are because we are actually on the right path, even though we don't have the overview of the whole thing. And as I mentioned in the, um, in the children's sermon, wouldn't that be great? Wouldn't that be great if you just had the, uh, the maze where the correct solution is already highlighted for you? You go, oh, this is it. And that way, when you're taking those backtracking ways, you don't feel weird about it. You're like, well, no, this is, <laughs> the whole way is marked out. I know that this is the right way to go. Wouldn't that be nice? Um, Joseph doesn't have that. He doesn't have it all marked out for him. And so here he is in the dungeon, alone and forgotten. Although, as we saw last week, he's not actually alone, is he? That's what we read last week a couple times is the Lord was with him. Hmm. So God is with him here even in Egypt, in prison, in the dungeon. And so even though you have the chief cupbearer forgetting about Joseph, we'll see as we move forward in the story, God has not forgotten about Joseph. That this part of the story is actually a part of that path that Joseph is on to uh, that time in his life where his brothers are going to bow down to him. That is coming in his future, even though he may not be able to see the way clearly yet. And so instead, we have, um, you know, the things that can be seen and the things that can't. Do you notice that God is virtually invisible in the story? It's only mentioned one time, and even then, just kind of offhand, as Joseph said, do not interpretations belong to God. That's it. But most of what captures our attention in this story is the crazy dreams, Right? and all the stuff that happens around it. And yet, if it weren't for the interpretations provided by God, you wouldn't see um, Joseph being able to interpret the dreams. None of the plot would move forward. God is nearly invisible, and yet he's still active. And as I mentioned before, we're going to get into some of these interpretations of things, of what when Joseph says, do not interpretations belong to God, we carry that forward. And we say, yeah, yeah, they do. He's the one who gets to not only create the world, but tell us and create life, but tell us what it's all about. Who gets to um, give us symbols and tell us what they mean. We've been reading the parables that Jesus tells. That's exactly what he's doing there, right? As Jesus gives symbols, and then says, this is what this means to his disciples. Interesting. And in fact, we even have things like vines and cups and bread. Does Jesus ever discuss any of these symbols? 
He does, doesn't he? Isn't that crazy? The same things thousands of years later, and yet here Jesus is um, giving meaning to those in an authoritative way. But what Jesus says is that these symbols point to him, right? And so this is one of the reasons why we can't go follow the Joseph Code to interpret our dreams and say, okay, this always means this. Because it doesn't always mean this. But Jesus gives interpretations to these same symbols and says things like, I am the true vine. Remain in me. He says things like, uh, this cup, the cup of the new covenant poured out in my blood. He says things like, I am the bread of life. And again, he says, uh, this, when he takes the bread, he says, this is my body, which is given for you. And so he takes these same symbols and shows how all of it is pointing to him and pointing to uh, what he's getting ready to do. In fact, think about it. here's another way that this whole story points to uh, Jesus. There's a play on words here that's actually kind of sick. And that is with this idea of lifted up because the... Cupbearer tells Joseph his dream, and as Joseph interprets it, he says, within three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your position. Lovely. Lift up your head, restore you to your position. You're no longer downcast and in prison, but lifted up and honored and glorified once again. The other guy, uh, it actually says, uh, literally in the Hebrew, uh, within three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head from you. <laughs> Boy, Joseph, that almost sounded like it was going to be as good as the other guys, but suddenly it took a turn. <laughs> He's going to lift up your head from you. <laughs> Ugh. And impale your body on a pole, and the birds will eat away your flesh. Ugh. Lift it up. Suddenly means something very different. So here's the question. Which of those two points to Jesus? Was Jesus lifted up and glorified or lifted up and killed? Which one? <laughs> you know me well enough to know I only ask trick questions. Which one? It's not one, it's both, right? Isn't that crazy? That it's both at the same time that Jesus is um, lifted up on a cross and yet is also lifted up in glory. This is one of those things that is unimaginable as you look to the future, but in hindsight, we see it clearly. Hindsight's twenty twenty. You look back at Jesus after he has died on the cross and then been raised from the dead and ascended uh, into glory. And we go, okay, yeah, I see Jesus is both. It is the death and the resurrection and the ascension. It is lifted up both in death 
and in life. Going forward, that makes no sense. Looking back on it, it totally makes sense. One of the things that uh, was constantly, I think, a, an issue of frustration is Jesus, uh, not accusing him of getting frustrated, but were I in his position, it would be very frustrating, <laughs> as he continually is trying to talk to his disciples about this very thing. I'm going to go to Jerusalem, and they're going to they're going to kill me, but then I'm going to raise to life again. And the disciples are like, I don't get it. Just over and over, I don't get it. And then it's after the fact that they look back on everything Jesus said and did and went, oh, now I get it. Now I see how both things were both true. I thought it could only be one or the other. It's not, it's both. This is the reason why we ought to be able to look at Jesus and trust him for our lives today. Because here's the thing about our own lives. You probably can look back at things in your life and see more clearly than you could at the time (laughs) what all was really going on there. You ever had that experience? You look back at something in the past, and you're like, I did this at the time because I really thought that if I would do this, this is how things would work out. But they didn't work out that way. And I look back on it now, and now that I know more about the whole situation, I see why that all blew up in my face. But at the time, I really thought that it would work out that way. We get to uh, look back on things, get that hindsight, but we live moving forward. And so as we take each step forward, we got to know. Just like in the maze, do we go left? Do we go right? Do we go straight? Every time we're making a choice, that is the question. What do we do here? And we can make our best guesses. And we can try to project into the future. Although I will tell you, we are terrible at predicting the future. And I will tell you the reason why I think we are most terrible at predicting the future is because we assume that the future is going to be like the present. And we look at the trajectory from the past to the present and we say, if it's going this way, it's going to continue this way. Even though if we look back at the past, it's never done that. But we still do that. And we say, if, it's, if this is how it's been going, then this is how it's going to continue to go, and I will just plan accordingly. And yet, that is not always the way. Um, Jesus, the night before he goes to the cross, actually tells his disciples, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now think about this. Think about being in a maze and having somebody who knows the way through the maze to say, come, follow me. Right? This is what we have is Jesus standing there and saying, come, follow me. I am the way and the truth and the life. But you know what we also have? We also have something similar to what Jesus had Uh, Early on in his ministry, when you have the devil right there with him saying, hey, I can show you a shortcut to glory. You can avoid all of the backtracking, all of the pain, all the suffering, all the self-sacrifice. Follow me instead. I'll get you there quicker. 
And every single one of us has followed that voice at some point, if not often. And Jesus is the one person who's uh, presented as consistently and always saying, no, not going that way. But who trusts in God completely. To the point that, you know, Jesus says, come follow me. And then he starts leading down paths. You know, we say, sure, okay, I'll, I'll do that. And then he starts leading down paths, and we go, um, hold on. That looks painful. That looks like self-sacrifice. That doesn't look like the route to glory. Hmm. But going back to what he said when he took the bread, you keep in mind, and remember this always, that Jesus does not take the bread and say, this is my body, which was taken from me. He says, this is my body, which is given for you. There's a huge difference there. Jesus takes the path of self-sacrifice for the good of others on purpose. Because he knows the way. He is the way. And he calls us to follow him in that. As we look at Joseph's story, I mentioned uh, that at the end of the story, it looks like he is far away from the dreams being fulfilled that he had earlier in life. That he is so far from glory. And just when we thought that maybe there was a chance that he was going to get out and start back on that path, nope. He's still stuck there in prison. And the last verse we're left with is, the chief cupbearer, however, did not remember Joseph. He forgot him. Insert sad trombone. But that's not the end, is it? The cupbearer forgot him, sure. But God doesn't forget him. The Lord is with him even there, and God knows that this is the way to what he had actually uh, predicted earlier in the dreams that he gave Joseph so many years before. As I mentioned, we know where we are today. We don't know where we'll be tomorrow. We know the way things have been. We don't know the way things will be. We know the challenges we faced. We don't know the challenges we will face. But we do have a God who knows us, who is with us in all of it, who does know all of those things and knows the way through all of it is the way of Jesus, who says to us, I am the way and the truth and the life. And also says, come, follow me. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.